And we have Bibles provided for you if you need one this morning. On, uh, you can find this text on page 1,197. And I would encourage you to follow along. This is a dense text. And uh, there's lots in it, lots I want you to see to be able to verify that what I'm giving you this morning is, is from the very Word of God, not some idea or ideas I've conjured up. So we will read Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. In 1952, Florence Chadwick made it her goal to swim from the Catalina coast through the open water to the California coast. She was the first woman to, have, uh, to swim the English Channel both ways. She was a long-distance swimmer, so this was normal for her. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Heaven, describes this story. He's, he says, as others have said, that, that Florence Chadwick walked out into the water on a very, very cloudy morning. And you couldn't see more than a few feet ahead of you. And as she began to swim, and the clouds were so thick and the fog was so thick, she soon started to lose heart because she just couldn't see where she was going. Surrounded by boats, her mother was in a small rowboat and others to keep her safe and guide her across. She called out and said, I think I'm, I'm done. I can't finish the swim. Her mother said, don't give up. You can make it. You've done this type of thing before. Keep swimming. Keep going. She went on for a little further, and finally she said, I can't do it. I can't even see before me. I have no idea where I am. I'm exhausted. I'm demoralized. Let me get into the boat. She got into the boat with her mother, and it was a short time later they realized they were not very far from the shore at all, only less than a half of a mile away from the shore. Florence Chadwick said later, had I, she said, this is no excuse, but had I been able to see the finish line, I would have finished the race. This is the message of Hebrews. We preached through Hebrews uh, years ago as a church together, went through this book. And this is, if you remember this, the book of Hebrews is one long sermon, exhortation, to tell and inspire the people of God in the midst of your pain, in the midst of suffering. Don't lose heart. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is superior. One day you're going to be reunited with him. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. Christ is superior. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and upon his grace, and you will finish the race. There were warnings throughout Hebrews, often promising the superiority of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel and saying Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is the, the, the one who brings us the new covenant. Fix your eyes on him. Don't lose heart. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up the fight. What the author of Hebrews wants us to see, though, is that one of the primary ways that we continue the fight is through experiencing the reality of the grace that is ours in the new covenant, particularly experienced in corporate worship. 
This week and next week, Pastor Heron and I are going to revisit these vision and values, core principles of our church, just two in particular. You know, you took vows when you joined the church that you would support the church in its worship and in its work. This week, we're going to look at worship. Next week, we're going to look at work, how we can fulfill our mission of uh, exalting Jesus Christ through our worship and through our work. I'm not here to beat you up this morning and say, you need to get back into church, okay? So just take a deep breath. But what I am here to say to you is, there is particular grace found in corporate worship from this text that you'd be crazy to miss out on. And so as we start a new year together, let's recommit ourselves to understand the special nature of God's grace in corporate worship. With that context in mind, let's read verses, uh, sorry, I need to turn to it myself. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 18. Here's what the author to the Hebrews says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages could be spoken, uh, messages be spoken to them. Let me pause. This is referring to what Pastor McHerd read from Exodus 19. This is talking about Mount Sinai. You're no longer at Mount Sinai, the author's saying. You've come to a new mountain, Mount Zion. So he's describing the terror of Mount Sinai. Verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Holy Spirit, we open our hearts and minds to you and ask that you take this rich text and allow us to understand it and be transformed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just two thoughts I want you to see as this text outlines it. Verses 18 through 24 talk about the new covenant reality in which we are already living as people of God. And then the new covenant responsibility of how we should respond to God's grace. You see that in verses 18 through 
or I guess uh, 25 through 29. Just one more word of context before we dive into this passage. If you'll look up with me at chapter 12 and look at verse 15 and verse 16, just two phrases, because I want you to see that our text is grounded in these ideas. Verse 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then down at verse 16, it says that no one is like Esau who sold his birthright for a meal. Now, I'll explain more about that in a minute. But in response to that, don't be like that. Enter into the new covenant reality which you already possess. Have you noticed that the text says you, are, you have already come? You have come to this. Well, what have we come to? To understand that, you have to understand the contrast of this text. He's contrasting Mount Sinai, the law the old covenant with Mount Zion, the new covenant of God's grace that we experience. So he brings up two mountains. You're no longer, he says, at Mount Sinai. Well, that's actually really good news. Why? Did you notice the descriptors of Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai was distance. Mount Sinai was judgment. Mount Sinai meant no access. Look at the words that are used here describing Mount Sinai. Darkness, gloom, blazing fire, sound of a trumpet. They didn't want any more messages being spoken to them because they were terrified. Even Moses said, I tremble with fear. God said, don't come to Mount Sinai. Moses can come up. He's our mediator of the old covenant. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Moses can come up here, but even Moses didn't want to be there because he was terrified. Don't even let your animals touch this mountain because if they do, they will die. Holiness, separation, terror, no access. So here's what the author to the Hebrews is saying. You're no longer on Mount Sinai. A radical change has taken place, and now you have already come through Jesus, the new mediator, to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion, that was an actual mountain uh, with the Old Covenant people. It, It became synonymous with Israel and Jerusalem. It was the mountain of God's people where he visited them. But even more so, Mount Zion represents the heavenly Jerusalem, the cosmic worship that is taking place as we anticipate the new heavens and new earth. We are going to head to the ultimate Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem. Do you see the contrast? You were at Mount Sinai, darkness, gloom, judgment, separation, law, condemnation. But through the blood of Christ, you now have a new reality in which you have access to God through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Let me describe it in this way. In 1995, I moved to Augusta, Georgia and uh, drove my car up onto Washington Road to that golf course that's up there that people said was really special. And I'd seen it on TV and and knew it was something that would be fun to see. So... I pulled right in the front gates. And uh, I didn't get very far, but I, I didn't 
think this would actually happen, but I uh, thought, why not? Let's try. Keep in mind, this was 1995. Today, they'd probably shoot me. But I pulled in, and uh, I said, and the guards came out, very stern, but very kind. And they said, sir, may we help you? And I said, no, I'm totally fine. I've never, I just moved to town, never seen the course. I was just going to drive through and just see what it's like. (laughs) They looked at me as if I'd lost my mind and said, sir, I I don't think you understand. You, You can't drive through here. Fast forward 20 years later. I have a good friend who lives in Arkansas who has become dear friends with a PGA golfer, Masters winner. I get a video sent to me from my friend driving down Magnolia Lane, looking all around saying, can you believe it? Look where we are. Pulling into the uh, pro parking spaces, walking into the clubhouse, taking pictures of golfers, all these things he shouldn't have been doing, just giving me the tour. What's the difference? I had no access, but my friend had full access through the merits of another. The old covenant, Mount Sinai, no access to God because of your sin, only separation. But on Mount Zion, full access to God, intimate relationship because of the righteousness of Jesus, as it says in our text, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, look at this way that Mount Zion is described here. Full access to God, a city in heaven, angels, millions of angels surrounding the throne that we join in with. You know, Galatians 3 tells us that angels were at Mount Sinai as well. Angels gave the law to Moses, but the angels there were simply messengers in a place of terror. Ours is a festal gathering of coming to the throne of grace to join the angels in the worship of God. Then you see other phrases here. Firstborn. Do you see what that says here? We have come to the firstborn, verse 23, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, what should that trigger our ears to about our new access? Well, Israel was called God's firstborn son. Jesus was called the firstborn among the brethren. Jesus was called the firstborn of the resurrection. What the author to Hebrews is telling us is, Through Jesus, you are no longer in terror of God. You are now full sons and daughters of God with all the benefits and blessings that come with being the children of the King. These are yours. You have joined the people of the firstborn. And we see this idea of the sprinkling blood of the new covenant. You know, we Presbyterians sprinkle or pour for a reason. We do so because we think it's better and it biblically uh, shows what's actually happening, happening in the sacraments. In the old covenant, they would sprinkle the blood on the sacrifices representing the cleansing of the spirit. In the new covenant, we no longer have blood sacrifices. We have water that the waters of baptism that represent the cleansing of the Spirit, and the Spirit comes down from above, so we sprinkle, showing the cleansing nature of water representing God's salvation. 
This is who we are, this new access through the sprinkled blood of Christ. The blood that is a better sacrifice than the blood of angel, of, of, of Abel. Abel cried out his blood from the ground, the Old Testament tells us, for vengeance. But Jesus' blood satisfies the vengeance of God. Jesus, in every way, the better mediator that allows us to come with confidence and boldness, new access to God. This festal gathering of, of, the, of the people of God before the, God the judge who is no longer judging us with his wrath but vindicating us because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. This is our new access. And Galatians and Hebrews pick this idea up in other places. Just let me give you a couple. Hebrews 4, 16 and 10, 19 remind us that we can enter into the holy of holies, and we can boldly a throne, approach the throne of grace because of the access we've been given through the blood of Christ. And the author of Hebrews says, this is your present reality. Enter in to the blessing of God. You're no longer on Mount Sinai. You are currently with Mount Zion and all the hosts of heaven. Let me move to the second one here. If there's this new covenant reality of unhindered access and blessing from God, what should our new covenant responsibility be? And that's what you see in verses 25 through 29. You see, first of all, a gracious warning from the heart of a loving God. Do you see what it says here? Verse 25, see to it, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And then there's this argument from lesser to greater. Now that you've been given this access to God, don't squander it. Enter in as much as you can to the grace of God, particularly, we're going to see in just a second, in corporate worship. But don't refuse the grace that is yours. And it gives the argument from lesser to greater. If they, with limited revelation and not the full picture, refused God's grace and were judged for it, how much more dangerous is it for those of us who have the fullness of God's grace in the new mediator, Jesus Christ, how much danger is it if we refuse that grace? Don't refuse the grace, he says, but do be grateful and show that gratitude by entering into corporate worship. Now, at this point, I feel like I'm going to have to prove to you that that's what this text is really saying about corporate worship. Because you're thinking, you're just a pastor. That's what you do. You tell us to come to church. And so you're going to make that application. But here's what I think the application is really clear. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 2. So remember the context of this book and remember what Jesus, the, the one who is the new mediator, has said to us. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus stands in the assembly of God's people in corporate worship, and he leads the praises. And we are worshiping God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the merits of Jesus as we come into corporate worship. Hebrews 10, verse 25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
Don't forsake your opportunity to enter in to corporate worship as much as you can. Hebrews 13 says, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise unto the Lord. So the context of Hebrews is saying, you, dear ones, experience the grace of the new covenant as you enter into corporate worship. Jesus himself said, you shall worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus said to the deaf devil, the Bible says that we should worship God and serve him only. So Jesus understands this as well, calling us into corporate worship together. Let me try to frame it in this way. Every time you and I walk into these doors, we are ascending Mount Zion together. We're no longer stuck at Mount Sinai, condemned by the law we cannot keep because the law keeper, Jesus, has made us righteous and holy in the sight of God. And so when we walk into corporate worship, we're walking straight up Mount Zion. We're in the heavenly of heavenlies itself. Jesus Christ is here present by the Spirit, and he's leading the singing of the triune God. We join the praises of myriads, millions upon millions of angels in this cosmic worship with the saints who've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, who've gone before us. Your loved ones who know Jesus are in the cosmic worship right now. And in, when we come to worship, we join that. And with the heavenly throng, we gather together and we declare the praises of God and sing for joy with grateful hearts because of what God has done for us. When we walk up that Mount Zion in the context of corporate worship, we are reminded that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I don't have the time to go through, but notice shaken, shaken, shaken. He, he did shake the mountain. Things will be shaken again once day, one day, ultimately. But we are not shaken because we have a kingdom that is unshakable in Jesus Christ. And so when you and I walk, look, all week long, the, 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 your sin and your brokenness and your messed up families and work that doesn't go the way it's supposed to go and your own physical sicknesses and your own emotional struggles and, and, and the death of loved ones, we are being shaken like crazy. But when you walk into this place of worship together, we climb right up Mount Zion and we join the hosts of heaven with the saints all over the world right now. And we join in that cosmic worship together to encourage one another to persevere to the end. We're in those boats by Florence Chadwick saying to one another when we come into corporate worship, you can make it. That's why God knew we needed it every seven days. And in this church, we get it morning and evening, every seven days. The power of corporate worship as we join the cosmic hosts of heaven. What a gift that God has given to us today. Now I wanna make three applications of this in our last few minutes together that I think come out of this text. You notice the text here says, so what do we do? Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful with grateful hearts for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Three points of application. Number one, 
This text calls us to not be like Esau. Why does it bring up Esau in the verses that precede our text? Because Esau forfeited the grace that could have been his and the birthright because he wanted a cup of stew. How many times do I not come to corporate worship and forfeit the grace that could be mine because I want the cup of stew? Now, I've told y'all before, I have to come here because I'm paid to come here. And often I come here kicking and screaming in my own heart because I just would rather finish that football game or I'd just rather stay home or I just frankly don't want to see anybody anymore. And I don't. But when I come, even kicking and screaming, the grace of the new covenant in corporate worship revives my heart and reminds me, here's the kingdom that is unshakable and you're headed somewhere and you can persevere to the end. Don't be Esau and forfeit the grace that could be yours. Secondly, do be like Lynn Stryker. Many of you don't know or maybe have never heard of the name Lynn Stryker, a dear saint of this church who went home and is right now worshiping Jesus face to face. She left us a few years ago. Lynn Stryker not only was a part of communion set up and clean up. It was her regular practice to polish the silver we use for communion. And when I would say to Lynn Stryker, thank you for doing that. The silver is gorgeous. Without fail, she would cry because she couldn't believe that she was able to handle the holy things of God that contain the body and blood of Jesus. And she saw worship with such reverence and awe that God in his grace had saved her and now she could polish the silver. Lynn understood what a privilege it is to gather in corporate worship in reverence and awe to recognize the grace and mercy of God. When I speak of reverence and awe, I think of this idea that God has not changed even though the mountains have changed. On Mount Sinai, that was a holy God who could have no part of sin. And he is still as holy today as he ever was. But through Jesus Christ, we can now come into the presence of that holy God without fear, without being afraid, even though we come with great fear. Let me try to explain that. When we teach our kids to drive an automobile, we don't want them to be afraid of the car, but we want them to have a healthy fear of the power of the car for good or for ill. If you speed in this car, if you run a stop sign in this car, you could ruin other lives and yours forever. Fear the power of the car. Don't mess around with it. Don't be flippant. Don't be careless. When we teach our kids to handle firearms, we want them to not be afraid of a gun. There's great uses to firearms, but we want them to respect the power for good or ill that a gun has. We don't want you to be afraid of it, but fear it. And I would just say to us, when we think about corporate worship, you no longer have to be afraid of God. He is not your enemy. He sees you as as perfect and righteousness and righteous as Jesus. But we do not want to come into his presence carelessly or flippantly or casually as if it doesn't matter. 
Hebrews says, when you come to worship God with a grateful heart, do so with reverence and awe. Let me make another point here quickly. I think that when we think of reverence sometimes, we think it has to be somber and boring and oppressive and heavy and and, and miserable. Like, you know, we have funeral reverence and we also have wedding reverence. When you walk into a funeral, you feel the weight of eternity and it's, it's reverent and it's appropriately somber yet hopeful. When you walk into a Christian wedding, you feel a giddy joy. But it's also reverent because what an amazing thing, the gift of marriage and covenant union that represents Christ in his body. We want a reverence of God in our worship that is not bound in fear, not shrinking back, not uptight, not somber, but joyful and holy as we enter into the majesty of God with the saints of heaven surrounding the throne. I think that you need to think about how you approach worship. Not flippant, not careless, not casual. I, I, I and we will not and should not prescribe for you how you should dress in church. Mothers, if you come in your pajamas and you get your kids to here and that's the best you can do, come on in, right? We're not going to judge people for how they dress in church, especially to outsiders, because we know no amount of good dress makes us right before God or gives us access to God. The, the only access we have to God is through the blood of Jesus. But I would say to you, think about it. In every other context of your life, you think about you wear, what you wear and how you handle yourself and how you prepare yourself for the occasion. When you walk into a courtroom, the judge will make you take your hat off. Why? It's respectful. Girls spend a week preparing for the prom. Why? It's a big deal to them. When you go to a wedding or you go to a funeral, you think, you're conscious about what am I walking into, so how should I handle myself? Listen, God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. But sometimes our outward appearance says a lot about our hearts. I would just say to you, come into worship having thought about worship with reverence and awe in the same way you think about everything else in your life. Come as you are to a God who will not judge you and also come with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Let's don't take it lightly. I got to go into the last one, I think. Um, Yeah, let's go to the last one. So don't be Esau. Do be Lynn Stryker. And thirdly, remember Kurt Cloninger. Now, some of you are, have no idea who that was. A few weeks ago, at the Advent season, Kurt Cloninger did a drama, a Christmas drama for us. Kurt Cloninger has done that for years, and, and many years ago, Kurt came to the EDGE conference, the conference we do for junior high students. And I'm in the back before he's going to go out and do the morning drama presentation And 750 middle schoolers and leaders are singing praise to God at the top of their lungs, and it's glorious. And I'm in the back behind this curtain before he goes onto the stage. And I'm singing the song, and Kurt's singing the song. I'm singing it because it was beautiful, and the words were rich, and it was wonderful to do. 
Kurt Cloninger singing the same song because he's holding on to it for dear life because every word of that song was the cry of his soul. Why do I say that? He had a son named Kappel, K-A-P-P-E-L-L, I think, who was a prodigal son through high school and college, made a wreck of his life, was, was running from the Lord, and in God's mercy at age 29, God brought Kappel back to Jesus. Only to just a few minute, months later, Kappel died four miles from his home in a motorcycle accident. It was weeks after that that I'm standing in the back, weeks, two, three weeks of that chapel with Kurt Cloninger with tears pouring down his face, singing the very same words I'm singing, holding on to it for dear life because for him it was not theoretical, it was life and death. What's my point? When you take advantage of the grace of corporate worship, morning and evening in this place, whether you want to be here or not, you are buoying one another as we worship together until we cross that finish line one day. You're pointing each other. It's coming. The day's coming. Jesus is just over the horizon. We're joining the cosmic worship now, but one day he's going to make it right. Don't give up. Don't quit the fight. Come and show up in worship and, and help each other. There's times when I give that creed that y'all say together, and I don't care about it. I'm not thinking about it. I don't like it. There's times when I pray and confess, and I'm half here, and there's times when I sing those same songs over and over, and I don't mean a word about it. And then I look at my neighbor, and I go, oh, yeah, this stuff really is true, and it really does matter, and I can make it one more week. That's the privilege of gathered corporate worship as we understand the reality of this new covenant grace we have been given all through the mediator, Jesus, and the blood he shed for us to give us that access to God. Uh, you get a, a new year's coming. Last time I checked, we have about 51 more Sundays ahead of us. Take advantage of them. You will not regret it. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word because it's true and holy and perfect and it shows us the merits of Jesus and what he's done for us. And we thank you for the invitation and command to come into corporate worship together as the people of God, helping one another finish that, cosmic, that, that, that uh, finish line as we join the cosmic worship of the saints that's taking place right now. Jesus, we love you, and we love you because you loved us first. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.